KMTT. Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. We're listening to the Erev Shabbat program. Erev Shabbat Kodesh Parashat Truma. Hey, Adar. The Erev Shabbat program is Lilui Nishmat Shlomo Yosef Ben Chaim Shmuel, and I'm your host, Jonathan Snowbell. Rarely have I sat down to write down anything before the Arab Shabbat program in recent history, and yet uh, approaching this Arab Shabbat program, I approach it bedechilu uh, rechimu with uh, fear and trepidation because. The topic that I'm going to discuss, in my opinion, needs to be discussed, but it's such a sensitive topic that, you know, I hope and pray that the words that I say are good words, positive words, and helpful words, and they're the right thing to say at this juncture. We say, but unfortunately, here, uh, with the news that broke out this week, and it's not a terrorist attack, but it's something that hits the core of our beings as Orthodox Jews, something that's shaken the national religious, modern Orthodox community in Israel. Uh, the exposure of the forum called Forum Takana of a very prominent rabbi within the modern Orthodox national religious community of issues of sexual misconduct and everything is in the press and all the people involved are known and still with this feeling of fear and trepidation, I don't even feel like mentioning the name of the person involved, not because I'm being stringent in the laws of Lashon Hara, but because it's just hard. And as I said, I'm not trying to hide anything, and I'm not trying to hide anybody's identity. Everything is in the press, and everything is out there for people to hear and see. In Parashat... Truma, we're exposed to the Mishkan. And in the Mishkan, we, for the second time within the Torah, come across the idea of borders. The first time we come across the idea of borders is in Parashat Yitro. And Parshat Mishpatim is an extension of Parashat Yitro within the Ma'amad of Har Sinai. When B'nai Israel are at Har Sinai, who is allowed to go to where? From here on in, only Aharon and his Kenim and Adav Avihu. From here on in, only Moshe and Yehoshua. And from here on in, only Moshe. And similarly, and that was maybe on a temporary level, that border was not a permanent border. We're all welcome and allowed to visit Har Sinai today, if we could find it. But the Mishkan, and subsequently the Mikdash, sets up, set up permanent borders, 
אב, זה קודש הקודשים, זה קודש, זה חצר, אב זה משכן, who's allowed where, when, and this issue, first and foremost, in my mind, maybe not first and foremost, I'm not sure what the order of things are here, is the acknowledgement of, and the knowledge of borders. Rav Amital, he should be healthy and well, coined a phrase, Lo hakol halacha, not everything is halacha. There are areas which halacha doesn't have a say about, or maybe halacha has a very minor point to say, and the main dealing of the issue is not a place of halacha. And therefore, the rabbi should know his limitations. A rabbi should know where his expertise ends, and that he has no place to go to. If people are turning to a rabbi with every problem, on an initial level that can be wonderful. To have an address to turn to, to know that you can, there's someone that you can go to for whatever terrible trouble that one feels that they're in. But the rabbi was trained in what the rabbi was trained And even if there are rabbis out there with a certain human intuition that allows them to counsel a person from their life experience beyond yore yore, yadin yadin, beyond iser veheter, what he learned to be a rabbi, beyond yadin yadin, to be a dayan, and the Torah's knowledge, the breadth of knowledge in the Torah is vast and enormous, and the Torah doesn't just refer to pots and pans, and it doesn't just refer to halakha, and there is a wealth of human knowledge to gain from the Torah. But a rabbi has to know the borders, and to say, when a person comes to them with a real problem and real suffering, of understanding things about intimacy and sexuality. Adkan. This is where I come in and say, I love you as your rabbi, and I want to help you. And the best way that I can help you is not for you to talk to me, because I studied in yeshiva for many years. I might have a wealth of life experience to share with you, but you... The best way I can help you is to tell you that I know three excellent sexual therapists who you should talk to about these issues. Because this is not my area of expertise. Even if there isn't a glimpse, a flicker of a worry that this will go to the wrong places, God forbid... 
just on the fact that the sexual therapist is an expert in their field, that is enough reason for a rabbi to know the border of his job definition and to know that the best advice that he can give to a student is the correct address to go to. Not to try to take everything on his own shoulders. A rabbi, and this is the second point that I want to mention, is an address for advice beyond Yore Yore, Yadin Yadin, Yatir Bechorot Lo Yatir, all areas of halacha that a rabbi is allowed to, permitted to address. But, when advising on personal issues, here too the rabbi must know the borders. And here it's a different type of border. Because when we're dealing with life issues, and a rabbi giving advice here, a rabbi should, in my opinion, being a good rabbi, should not be increasing the dependence of the student on the rabbi, but rather should be empowering the rabbi, should be empowering the student, pardon me. The rabbi should be giving tools to the student to help them make decisions, not make decisions for them, not create a scenario in which the student has to constantly return to the rabbi to ask every single question, but to give them wisdom, to give them understanding, to empower them, and I say that word over and over again, so that they will have the tools to be able to face the world on their own. Not so that with every problem and issue they have to return to the rabbi. And not that people shouldn't feel welcome and able to turn to their rabbis, but that the rabbi's goal should be to empower the student and not to create a dependence, not to create a relationship in which everything must go to the rabbi and everything can be solved to the rabbi. The rabbi should not be creating a figure of of a savior for their student, because we have one Savior, and that is HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God Almighty in the heavens, and no other person in the world is our Savior. And all the good people that we know, and the helpful people we know, are good and helpful because they can empower us, for us to take our lives in our hands, and to make the right decisions in life, and to do the right things. And here, I want to talk about a a personal story, not an intimate story, but a story 
which apparently left an impact because I came back to it this week. I have a question that I went to Rav Luchenstein, and I'm mentioning Rav Luchenstein now because I think it's important for people who know Rav Luchenstein, students and others, to throw their support behind Rav Luchenstein now because Rav Luchenstein is in the eye of the storm. He's in the eye of the storm as one of the bigger authorities in this forum, Takana, that's decided to take this story publicly and expose what's going on here. And Rav Luchenstein has been apparently receiving threats. And certainly, as one would do, is being questioned as to his integrity. But before that I discuss the point of the integrity, I want to just tell this story because it relates to the previous point. Because I remember asking Rav Luchenstein when I was 23 years old about a certain decision, and retrospectively it was a minor decision, about whether I should be traveling to Russia to do this and this, or I should be staying in yeshiva and learning. And I went to him, and he explained to me the two options that I had before me. And I remember feeling a distinctive feeling of frustration and disappointment that I did not get an answer from him. Here I am, asking for a question, looking for an answer, and the answer to the question was, these are your options, A or B. And the answer to the question was, it's not a question that anybody should be deciding for me. This wasn't a halakha question of whether my pot was kosher or treif. This was a question of guidance, of what I should do. And at the end of the day, what Rav Luchansin did was empower me. He told me the cost and benefit. And he empowered me to make the decision. And he said to me, it's not my decision to make, it's your decision to make, and I will not take this decision upon my shoulders because it's your decision to make. Not because he did not want to take the responsibility for the decision, but because it was not his responsibility to make the decision, and it was his responsibility to empower me. I've been making references, those who are listening, to where we are in Dafyomi right now, in Sanhedrin. And Sanhedrin talks about, in Sanhedrin we learned the Gemara that a Dayan Mumcha is allowed to be Dan Yechidi. So of course this is not in all fields, and this is not related. But Rav Luchenstein is not a Dayan Yechidi in this case. The forum is an extensive forum of people from different areas of the national religious camp, the modern orthodox camp in Israel, just for an example, Rav Yakim Levanon and Rav Luchenstein probably agree on close to nothing. Don't agree on politics. In recent times, we could talk about them not agreeing on the issue of refusing an order in the IDF. Rav Yakim Levanon not only disagrees with Rav Luchenstein, he refused to attend a conference of Rosh Yeshivot Hazder to discuss the matter because he anticipated a position that was uncomfortable to him and he wasn't even willing to meet his peers and discuss it. But here they sat together and here they reached the same conclusion. And we're talking about different people. We're not, we're not talking about one person. But as a Talmud of Yeshivat Haaretzion and someone who learned with Rav Luchenstein, 
Rav Luchensin is a person of integrity. Rav Luchensin is a person who isn't flippantly throwing out accusations, destructive accusations that are hurting not only the individual involved and his family, but his students as well. There's no joy in this. There's no defeat of an adversary or a competitor. There's nothing but sadness and ogmat nefesh and the responsible thing to do. And those of us who know Rav Lichtenstein and those of us who know the various people involved in this forum understand that it is very difficult to understand how all these people could get together and come in an agreement on this matter without there being a basis for agreement on this matter. And I'm not the judge, and I don't know the details of the case, and I don't know anything. And this is my humble opinion. In the context of Parashat Arayot and Parashat Kedoshim, we come across a fascinating term. talks about a person who takes his sister or half-sister and he has sexual relations with her. And the Torah said, Chesedhu. So my English translation of the Koran Bible says, it's a disgraceful deed. But of course, all the commentaries discuss why on earth is the word chesed being used here. And I think in this context, all I want to say is that a relationship of a brother and a sister is a relationship of love, great love, tremendous love, but too much love, too much chesed, too much outpouring of emotions can go over the border and be a terrible deed. So the word chesed can be at the same time the chesed that we know of doing good, And doing good can reach places of being an unforgivable deed, a terrible deed, an incestual deed. Too much love, too much giving is not a good thing. And there is a reason why the world was created with chesed and din, with giving and with limitations. And that brings us back to where we started about knowing the borders. We should know happier days and happier adars. And may we all have the ability to come together and bring ourselves together and realize that our Savior is not in one person or one group of people. Our Savior is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And know that we have the ability and we have the responsibility to pick ourselves up from this and move forward
in our lives, in our Avodat Hashem. Shabbat Shalom, B'Sorot Tovot, Yeshuot V'Nechamot. Parshat Roma. I'd like to begin with something from towards the end of the parsha. Obviously, the parsha has many, many mitzvot, which are explicit, which are clear. It's a mitzvah to build a mishkan, to build a mikdash, a mitzvah to build an aron, etc., etc. The obvious ones we're not going to talk about. The in the building of the mishkan, the pasuk says, "Va'asita takirashim la mishkan atzei shitim omdim." The kirashim, the poles, the beams. The beams of the Mishkan were made from uh, were made from wood, from uh, the Atzei Shita. The Suk says Atzei Shitim Omedim. What does it mean that they were standing trees? Atzei Shitim Omedim, standing. Uh, the Gemara Sukkot of Memhei has the following Amar Amar Chizki Amar Rabbi Yirmiyah Mishum Rabbi Shimon Ben Yochai Kol HaMitzvot Kulan I want to pay attention to the opening All Mitzvot It's be difficult to find more than one or two examples but it's important to stress that the thing we're going to learn now is a Klal B'chot Kula even if there are very few examples Kol HaMitzvot Kulan Ein Adam Yotzei Bahen Ela Derech Gedilatan Any Mitzvah that one does one must do the object that one does the mitzvah with should be derech gedilatan. It should be, it should appear in the manner in which it grows. Shenemar atzei shitim omedim. Tanya namiach atzei shitim omedim sheomedim gederech gedilatan. The interpretation of the Gemara for the pasuk atzei shitim omedim is that the karashim, the beams, were made in such a way that their actual placement in the Mishkan, they were standing beams, these are not beams for the roof, the beams for the side. The walls of the Mishkan were made of these beams and then covered with, uh, with, uh, with cloth, with skins. So these beams stood in the same way as they grew. In other words, the bottom, bottom, top, top. And from this we learn that all mitzvot, should be Kederach Gedilatan. What's the intention of the Gemara here? This is the Gemara in Sukkah Daf Memhei. It's telling us, Halakha, that Lulav, Hadas, Ve'arava, and apparently Gam Etrog, also an Etrog, must be held Derech Gedilatan. Halakha, which almost all of us are familiar with, because that's the reason why when you make the Bacha and the Etrog, you hold it upside down and you turn it over. Because the only Yotzei, the Dalad Minim, when the Dalad Minim are being held, these are plants, and there should be, the mitzvah should be done the way they grow, meaning standing, standing upright from bottom to top. And the uh, Rashi explains, Lulav Hadas Varava, the Kola Mitzvot means Lulav Hadas Varava, Gedelech Gedilatan, Tachton Lamata, Ve'elyon Lemala. In, in Etrog, I think people have very often asked this question. If you go to look at an Etrog tree, so you'll see that in almost all cases, the Etrog is hanging down. In other words, the stem is up and the pitum is towards the bottom. But when we hold an Etrog, we hold it the other way around. And the reason which the Echoranim explain is because it, it grows up. Now, the Etrog is heavy and the connection is, is relatively weak. And therefore, as it grows, when it first comes out, the flowers are pointing up. And the beginning of the fruits are pointing up. The weight causes it to turn down. 
So even in this case it appears to be going upside down. It does go upside down because of gravity. But the assumption somewhere is that growth is up. I think it's an important point because we're not really trying to, apparently, we're not trying to reproduce nature. I think the point is that Gderek Dilatan means that up. That you, these are talking about growing things. These are live objects used in mitzvot. And they aspire upwards. They grow from the bottom to the top. The fact that your oak turns upside down is because it's not growing in the direction of up. It's because it has the weight. But growth by definition is up. And therefore the etrog also is held, put them on top and stem and stem on the bottom. Now, um, the Meshachachma points out an interesting point here. At Seishitim, the wood was used in the Mishka not only for the Kashim, but for, but for other things as well. Halachalamaisa, we use growing things, things that grew in the ground, other things as well. For instance, Semisechta, Sukkah. A Sukkah is made, or very often is made of wood. The walls of the Sukkah, there's a Halacha, is there a Halacha? That one should place the boards that I use for the wood of my sukkah in such a way as to recreate the way they grew, that the bottom is closer to the roots and the top was the part that was that was growing. Obviously, no one tries to do that. It would be almost impossible to achieve. You'd have to, if you, even if you're using real branches, that you could, but if you're using boards, you wouldn't even know how to do it. Obviously, there's no such halacha. It's halacha only in. Lulav Hadas Varavah. As I pointed out, the Gemara doesn't talk about Lulav Hadas Varavah. They must talk about Kola Mitzvot Kulan. So there might be very few Mitzvot which are done with with vegetative matter. But Asukah is. So you could answer that it doesn't have to be. There's no halacha to take plants and build a Sukkah. You can make a Sukkah out of, out of the walls. You can make out of anything. The Sukkah already is meant to be lying down. Uh, and that's why it doesn't count. But the, the Meshachachim puts out a very interesting point. Even in the Mishkan, wood was used for other things. But since the Aron, the Aron HaKodesh, was made out of Atzeishitim, the very same trees that are used for the Mishkan, but there's no halacha that it should be standing up. And he puts it because the Pasuk doesn't say so. The Pasuk there says, by the Aron, Atzeishitim. And by the, the Kvashim it says, Atzeishitim Omdim. The word Omdim only appears only once. And the Meshachachim's answer is, that the Mishkan itself, of which the Kashim were part, was taken apart and put back together all the time. The Mishkan is a, 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 a movable, and that's movable, but it's a collapsible object. Whenever B'nai Yisrael moved about in the Midbar, they would take the Mishkan apart and then put it back together again when they came to their destination, when they came to their tachana, they came to their resting place. Because that's why the halacha applies. But the Aronu Mizbech, which was built only once, and then that was the permanent status, there's no such halacha of derech gedilatan, the way they grew. Now, what, what is, he doesn't explain at length what he means. What, what, what does this really mean? It means, if you have raw material that you're using, then we don't care. When, when you build the Aron, the Aron doesn't contain trees. It contains wood. Wood comes from trees. There is no point in the Aron HaKodesh of recreating a tree. Now, the Kashim, which are very similar to the walls of a Sukkah. Sukkah doesn't need Atzeishitimondim, but the Mishkan does. He explains the reason why. is because this is taken apart all the time. Apparently, 
That's what the Pasuk says. The walls of the Mishkan are made from Atsei Shitim Omdim. They're not made from wood which comes from trees. They're made of trees. That's why it says Omdim. The fact that they're taken apart all the time means that you don't, they're not, it's not raw material built into something else. It retains its original identity. Uh, if you, if you connect something permanently to a new status, it loses its old status. But if it's constantly going back to its previous state, then it retains its original identity. And the Pasuk is telling us that's not a, that's not an accident. The Pasuk is telling us that that's in fact inherent. The Krashim of the Mishkan are not beams, they're trees. Mishkan is made of trees. What that means, I'm sure everybody can think of something. It's an interesting idea, no? That, that the Mishkan, the walls of the Mishkan are not made of wood, but they're made of trees. Obviously, lulav etrog hadas v'arava, it's not raw material that's used to make something. It's 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 the it's the tree itself. It's the fruit itself. It's the branch itself. We're we're taking natural branches on on Sukkot. Uh, uh, the Gemara mentions in terms of lulav, the shaking of lulav is yanu kolatzayar. We're like people holding lulavim and shul are a forest. It's, it's very much a recreation of the natural world. And so there, you hold it to make sure that you are doing it exactly as it is in the natural world. Where something is manufactured out of vegetative matter, but it loses its original character. That's the whole point. Take the original character and change it. It's grist for the mill. So then there's no such halacha. Which is why halacha the ma'isa, there are in fact very few mitzvot to which this would apply. The only ones that we know of, the only ones that I, meant, that I know of in Halakha, is, uh, are, in fact, the Abba Minim. There's only one mitzvah, four parts. Lulav, Etrog, Arava, Vehadas. I was thinking in my mind that there is a, it's quoted La Halakha, that when you blow shofar, it should point up, but it's not Ma'akiv. And the reason given is not for this. It's going to be because of Sheyalut, uh, Tfilah Teinu. In other words, uh, shofar represents Tfilah. Tfilah also, you look up. And so when you blow the shofar, you're blowing, so to speak, your souls, you're blowing your tefillot up to God. So the end of the shofar should face up. But it's only a minute, it's only, it's not, it's only l'chatechila. And, uh, you're yotze. By lulav and hadas, the mama we quote from sukkah is vidyevit. You're not yotze. If you hold the lulav upside down. Um, and, because, uh, because shofar is apparently not learned from there, apparently it only applies to vegetative growth. And not to the fact that horns grow on top of rams. In a certain direction. In fact, it's actually they go the other way around. The part that we call the top of the etrog is, is actually the bottom of the of the ram. So that that wouldn't apply. So therefore, in in terms of fact, kolam mitzvot kulan. That's the words of the Gemara. Kolam mitzvot kulan. All doubled. Kul kol kulan. All the mitzvot in their entirety. Turns out there's only one such mitzvah. I, I can't think of any other. There surely is no other example quoted in halacha. And I can't think of any other example to even suggest. But uh, nonetheless, it's not a special halacha in lulav. It's a halacha in those mitzvot which use nature, which aren't a lot. But if you do use nature, then you have to recreate nature. And apparently there are some mitzvot like that. It tells us something about sukkah. It tells us something about, about lulav. Okay, I have one other uh, halacha mitzvah which is learned from today's parsha. Somewhat more controversial whether it's correct. The very beginning of the Pasha. Va'asuri mikdash v'shachanti b'tocham. There is a mitzvah to build a Beit HaMikdash. That is, that is clear. Uh, it's called in the Gemara, it's called in the Rambam. Uh, 
מצוות עשה, לבנות בית המקדש שנאמר ועשו לי מקדש ושכנתי בתוכן. Now there is no marker that I know of directly in the Gemara which would say that this Pasuk, Pasu Li Mikdash, would apply to a Beit HaKnesset. However, in other contexts, there are other Halachot which imply that a Beit Knesset, a synagogue, has the same status, perhaps on a minor level, but the same basic status as the Mikdash. The one which is perhaps most clearly applicable to our case, because it uses the same word, is a, uh, the sheet of the Bali Yireyim, and a number of other Rishonim as well, the Smag, that the Pasuk in Parshat Kedoshim, U Mikdashi Tirao, there's a Din Midioraita of Mora Mikdash, which in Mikdash means, you know, how to wear shoes, you know, how to carry things, uh, your private, uh, it says your wallet, you shouldn't go in with your wallet, or your shoes on your feet, or a, 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 a cane, a, a cane in your arm. Mikdashi <coughs> tirau, there's a mitzvah of Mora Mikdash. The Yireim says that that's a mitzvah di orait about Beit Knesset. The application is different. There's no iso to wear shoes in shul. But the general mitzvah of Mora Mikdash applies to a shul. You're not allowed to do improper things. You're not allowed to show disregard for a Beit Knesset. The Yireim says, Explicitly, that that's mitzvah diyoraita. Why? Because a Beit Knesset is a mikdash ma'at. That's based on a Gemara that says that the uh, in, in more of an agadic context that Beit Bate Knesset and Bate Midrash are mikdash ma'at, a little temple, a little mikdash. So the Yerim says that's not just an agadah, that's halacha in terms of that other mitzvah, mikdashi tirau. But based on that derivation, the word if the word mikdash in the pasuk mikdashi tirau means Beit HaMikdash and Beit HaKneset, then Vasuli Mikdash Shkanti Betocham could mean that as well. Many Achorim assume, not always giving a source, that there is a mitzvah, midi oraita, to build a Beit HaKneset. Of course, there's a Gemara in Baba Batra that says that, uh, that there, there is a chiyuv, there is an obligation to build a Beit HaKneset. If we move into a town and there's no Beit HaKneset, so you don't vote on it. It's, everyone is obligated to pay in order to build a Beit HaKneset. That means that there's an obligation. Uh, you could interpret that the, the same Mishnah says an obligation to build a wall around the town. In other words, there are certain things which a community needs. You need a Beit Knesset. And what you need is taxable. You, your taxes pay for it. And so that wouldn't imply that it's a mit- specific mitzvah. There's a mitzvah to build a wall. Of course, it's not to build a wall. You have to take care of each other, but it's not a specific mitzvah. So we need a shul. We need a mikvah. We need a shul. We need a, I don't know, we need a public park. We need things which we need. But many Achorim assume there really is such a mitzvah. They were not committed to halacha. Technically speaking, at least in Chutzlaretz, the possibility exists of building a place, having a place to daven, which will be multi-use. I, there's a prohibition, you're not allowed to do secular things in a shul. So you can build a matnai. The, the, the more technical halacha is what you're allowed to destroy. You're not allowed to knock down a shul. Uh, but why? So you can, uh, at night, because that's at night could possibly work. Under certain conditions, it's very debatable, but certain conditions could work. But the question is whether or not you're allowed to do lechatchila. Because if there's a mitzvah at mikdashi, vasuli mikdash, you're supposed to build a mikdash. So, samachonum paskan alachalamaisa, that means that you're obligated at least one. Every community has to have a shul. And it has to be a real shul, not a place to daven, not just a practical 
possibility of getting together, in which case I can use your living room. If someone's willing to let us dominate in his living room. So that's okay, then, you know, temporarily. But the mitzvah, Vasuri Mikdash, is not to daven bitzibur, but to have a building which is special to be a, 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 um, a, a mikdash. And so that's one, one nafkamina. The truth in the Marik, who says that the isu of knocking down the titza, which is learned, it's by the Beit HaMikdash, you're not allowed to chip the Mizbeach. The Marik says that's an isu di oraita about a Beit HaMikdash, about a Beit HaKnesset. Beit HaKnesset is like a Beit HaMikdash, linyan binyan bin titza. And that's one of the sources, so if that's true, then there's also be a mitzvah of building one. Even though, not exactly the same thing. In other words, it's again a comparison between Beit Nesset and Mikdash. In our context, it's hard to find a, a source in the Rishonim that says explicitly that the mitzvah to build a Mikdash is a mitzvah to build a Beit Nesset. But in other halachot of Mikdash, we do find it, and uh, offhand it would seem to be very similar. Many Achorim assume that it's the same thing. There really is um, such a mitzvah. Uh, as I mentioned, that there's a mitzvah to build it Lishma. <coughs> the building should be dedicated to be a Beit Knesset, like a Beit Mikdash, as some posts can say. Um, so while there is some controversy as to whether or not the sources are, are sufficient here, more or less, at least among many Achronim, there is the assumption that Beit Knesset and Beit HaMidrash, two buildings which are used for Avodat Hashem of Tefillah and Torah, uh, have the status of Mikdash, including a mitzvah to build it. Obviously, Jewish communities have always done this. Uh, but sometimes, you know, you, you really wonder. In other words, it costs a lot of money, not too many Jews, only 30 Jews living in town. So, how long can we get away with just davening in your living room? Is there a mitzvah, vidyoraita, that any group of Jews should have a mikdash ma'at, should have a beit haknesset? So, there are sources uh, not 100% clear, but there are, uh, there are sources based on this statement. The Gemara in the Gilad of Chavtet, Vayelahem nemikdash ma'at, Eilu batei chneset ubatei medrashot shebabavel, and if Yecheskel HaNavi calls Beit Knesset in Bavel a mikdash ma'at, then every, perhaps, every mention of the word mikdash in the Pasuk as in our Pasuk, Asuri Mikdash Chadi B'Tocham, would include also a Beit Knesset and Batei Medrashot Shibbamavel, or in America, or in England, or in anywhere else. And that's it for today. We'll be back next week with the next week's Pasha. Shabbat Shalom Umevorach.